you can turn with me, if you will, unless you think you can remember this one, to Matthew chapter 5. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's it. That's all I got for you today. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Now, last night, some of us went to the Phantoms game I think to do research for today, I think I wanted to experience what it was like to be poor in spirit, and after watching three of the worst periods of hockey I've ever witnessed, I like to think that whoever was there has an edge on our lesson today. Last week, uh, we started the series here on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we dedicated a whole Sunday just to the preamble to our series, and today I'm going to undertake the task of preaching a sermon on a single verse. it's not quite walking a tightrope between the two towers or anything, but, you know, it's, it's a, as a preacher, this feels risky, because I'm no Martin Lloyd-Jones, let's be honest, but I'll do what I can. Um, and, and last week, we, we talked about the law and how the Sermon on the Mount is essentially Jesus' take on the law. And most of you probably realize, I mean, laws are usually, by definition, quite boring to read and hard to understand, right? Um, and the easy solution in that case is just to not read them, and you know if you can help it. And you know I'm from Philadelphia originally, and that's how you live in Philadelphia. You don't worry about parking in the questionable spots or getting permits to build that fence. You just kind of figure the cops have enough to deal with with the shootings in the city, and they can't possibly have the manpower to bother you, so you just do what you want. And so in that sense, city laws can sometimes be you know a sort of ignorance is bliss sort of situation, but. We are embarking on a dangerous task in this series. We're eliminating the ignorance by reading Jesus' law, the law as Jesus interprets it, and that we as Christians are expected to try to obey. This is the way of Christian discipleship. But the Sermon on the Mount has something of an unexpected opening, I think, uh, because if we say that this sermon represents Jesus giving the law as the new and better Moses... Uh, we might expect this to sound a little different. You know, if, if he came to not only save us from our sins, but also to make us new creations, and if we are called to live in newness of life, not because we can earn salvation, but because we have a new Lord, if we are no longer slaves to our flesh or to the world, if we have a new and better master, if we've been freed to serve him and become more like him, and we saw that this is the heart of what we call discipleship, if that's what the sermon is about, you would expect it to sound like a list of do's and don'ts right off the bat. It's certainly going to get to that a little bit, but Jesus gets kind of hardcore later on, but his opening lines are are kind of misleading in a sense. Uh, I I warned us last week that Jesus in this sermon was going to knock us off our pedestals uh, because we all have a self-righteous streak, I think. Uh, Some of us hide it better than others, but we're very good at comparing ourselves to other people. And we can always find a bigger sinner than us, and so we mostly assume we're doing okay by comparison, right? And I did warn us that Jesus is not going to let that slide in this sermon, Uh, and I warned you he's going to hit us hard. And yet the sermon begins not with the fire and brimstone, but with a series of blessings. I thought of treating this as a mini-sermon series within the larger sermon series and calling it hashtag blessed. I might do that after all. Maybe it'll appeal to our our Hallmark movie-type watchers online. I don't know. We'll we'll discuss it later, Jed. Um, 
But Jesus opens up his reinterpretation of the law by giving us some statements about who is blessed. Which is, by the way, kind of a contrast for how the law is introduced in the Old Testament. You know, when God came down to Mount Sinai to give the law to Moses, most of the preface there is him issuing warnings and threats. Tell the people to stay away. Get away from the mountain. And then he reminds the people of who he was. He says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So God calls Israel to keep the law in response to what he had already done for them. And it kind of feels heavy right off the bat. But Jesus welcomes the people right up onto the mountain to sit at his feet. And he doesn't tell them to back up. And he opens with this series of blessings. And we call these eight statements the Beatitudes. Now, as a kid, I often wondered what that meant. Kind of sounded like a pirate disciplining his kid, like Darby attitude in this house, and I don't like it, you know, or something. But as it turns out, it just means blessings. Now, blessings is only one possible interpretation of the word in the Greek. The Greek word is makarios, which can also be just as easily translated as happy. So, read that way, Jesus starts his sermon on discipleship by telling us who is happy. How many of you would describe yourselves in a general sense as being happy? All right, we got a few, a few folks. For me, it kind of depends on the day. Um, how many of you want to be happy? All right, see, that makes more sense. Of course we do. That makes sense to us as Americans. Um, I mean, after all, what does it say in the Declaration of Independence, right? We have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness, right. So even American laws are, in theory, supposed to help us achieve happiness, and that makes sense because it's a fundamental human desire. Who wants to be unhappy? And I think God wants us to be happy. As that great theologian Benjamin Franklin supposedly said, beer is proof of that, right? He's not entirely wrong there. So that's where Jesus starts. The reasons that he's giving us guidance is so that we can be happy, not by the world's definition, but by God's. And since I think we all want to be happy, Jesus starts by telling us who is happy. But it doesn't take long before you start to wonder if Jesus is using some kind of weird definitions here. Because no one on this list really sounds all that happy. Uh, and that's something we're going to have to wrestle with. It's like when somebody tells you that Friends is the funniest show ever and your immediate thought is we have very different, different, different definitions of funny, right? Um, we're going to have a lot of that in the next few weeks and we're just going to have to wrestle through what Jesus is saying and what he means by it. So what do happy people look like anyway, Jesus? Um, we're all pursuing happiness. Who are the people we should be imitating in that regard? Well, Jesus starts with this strange category. He says, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit. And I'm already confused because by definition, being poor in spirit sounds kind of unhappy like that Phantoms game last night. And yet, Jesus says they are blessed. And one of the things that immediately comes to mind as you start studying this, this particular verse is the similar passage in Luke. In Luke's gospel, that's a different sermon Jesus gives that's also listed. He, he has a shorter list of Beatitudes in that passage in chapter 6. And this one makes the list, but it lacks the spiritual qualifier. Luke 6.20, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor, full stop, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now that makes sense to us on a, on a very basic level. Um, how many of you have ever known or met people who are rich but are also unhappy? Mm -hmm. I spent my entire deli career in Philadelphia uh, working in Chestnut Hill. It's one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in Philadelphia, second only to Rittenhouse Square, I think. And 
Some of my customers had money. Heiresses, CEOs, politicians, lawyers, professors. I had a few uh, professional athletes. And these were not universally happy people. Money doesn't fix everything. And as some of them age, they get older, and and their health began to fail, and the mask would kind of come off at that point, and it would reveal a sort of bitterness underlying everything. And so I learned up close that money can't buy happiness. It can buy beer, which if Ben Franklin is correct, it can help, but it can't fix everything, right? At the end of Shakespeare's Richard III, which I've never read or even watched the movie, but I saw the tail end of, uh, of A Virgin with Al Pacino in it, but there's that famous line, he's on the battlefield, all is lost, and Richard just wants to escape, and he says, my kingdom for a horse, right? Meaning his kingdom is of no use to him. What he really needs is a ride. He needs an escape, and no amount of wealth can save him. So I, I can understand saying that the rich are not necessarily happy. And I can also understand saying that the poor are happy. In some ways, that's obvious. I, I watched Titanic, the movie, right? That was pretty much the whole message of the film, right? Uh, that, that poor people don't have the same things to worry about that rich people do. They're cooler. You, you, you don't worry about the stock market when you're poor. You don't fret over your taxes quite as much if you're poor. Most of us would rather party with normal poor people than drink cocktails with rich people because rich people are stuffy, right? Right? Poor people have a reputation for being more fun. So the words in Luke's gospel makes more of a superficial sense in that way. And yet that doesn't clear everything up. Because I happen to know it's completely possible to be poor and unhappy about it. Now, according to the federal government, I've been poor pretty much my entire life, including today. I don't feel that way. I think we're getting along fine. But when you have six kids, apparently the government considers you a complete tragic case. (laughs) It's ridiculous what they regard as the poverty line when you have as many kids as I do. However, there have been some years where we have been legitimately kind of tight on cash. Uh, We have done the Dave Ramsey beans and rice diet before just to stay afloat. We have had to say no to many things. There were years where we convinced a young Grace and Alyssa that VHS tapes from the thrift store were legit Christmas presents. (laughs) So being strapped for cash can be embarrassing at times. I was once invited during that same kind of era uh, to a formal dinner by a friend, and I didn't understand that it was a fundraiser dinner. Apparently, uh, they expect money, and... um, After showing up and eating the filet mignon and feeling awkward and hearing a celebrity speaker uh, being served fancy drinks, then they started asking for big money. And we emptied what little we had in our wallets and got out of there as quickly as we could because we hadn't even brought a checkbook. Um, So poor people may have more fun, but it can be a stressful way to live too. So poverty is no guarantee of happiness, right? I can attest that in many ways money was much more of an idol for me when we had less of it. I think many poor people obsess over money as much as any rich person could possibly do. Probably more so, because in some ways it's much easier to idolize what you don't have. We tend to idolize the things that are out of reach for us. So it doesn't seem automatic that the poor would be happy or blessed. But if nothing else, it's easy to understand what Jesus is trying to get at, at least. In Luke, uh, poor people are blessed because they're not cursed with an overabundance of riches. 
Uh, it's an interesting thing that riches are the only thing in the English language that I know of that can be quantified in terms of how embarrassing they are. You can have an embarrassment of riches, but nothing else. What the poor have going for them is that they are not too attached to this world in theory, right? If you don't have much on earth, it's easier to have an eternal perspective, isn't it? As Jesus said elsewhere, it's difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven, not because money itself is evil, but because it's a distraction from eternity. So if we were studying Luke's gospel, we could be overly simplistic and just lionize poverty, as it is. Uh, Luke's version is one of those verses that, you know, progressives will like. Because taken at face value, it sounds like the greatest virtue is simply having no money. That's overly simplistic. That's not what Jesus means in Luke's passage either. But I have known people in the church who have leapt to that very conclusion. Uh, It's actually quite common in church history. It's where you get a lot of the ascetic movements in in the history from. Uh, Monks living in deserts and, you know, sitting up on a a pedestal somewhere and just starving themselves just to prove how godly they are. And there are people in the church today that gravitate in that kind of way. I have one friend back, uh, back in Philly who was quite certain that the only way to live a godly life was to give all your clothing to the poor, buy one outfit from the thrift store, and live on ramen noodles. I don't think he ever actually had the nerve to do it. I suspect he was just trying to start a debate. But I think it's true throughout our culture that to be poor gives you a certain authenticity, doesn't it? Never mind the fact that the poorest American is still rich by worldly standards or the fact that most of the poor of the world are still living better lives than most of their ancestors. If you are perceived as poor, you have automatic street cred. You get to complain about how rough you have it. And people listen. So... It's almost cool to be poor in our culture, and Luke's account seems to reinforce that perspective if you don't look too deep. But, you know, Matthew Henry, in his classic commentary, he calls this being poor but being rich in spirit. He says, many are poor in the world but high in spirit, poor and proud, murmuring and complaining and blaming their lot. And we all know people like that. Many of us have been people like that. But anyway, we're not studying Luke, are we? We were in Matthew, I believe. Um, In Matthew, Jesus words it differently in this sermon. He doesn't say that the rich are unhappy or that the poor are happy. He says that the poor in spirit are happy. And that's a peculiar thing to say. If he had said that poor people will be rich in spirit, that would make more sense to me. We would conclude that rich people must be poor in spirit and that therefore we should do what my friend was suggesting and give everything away, stop bathing, and eat ramen noodles. For the record, my kids eat ramen noodles every single day, but they do this by choice, not necessity. I just want to make that clear. (laughs) Now, again, poor people have always had an easier time, I think, in in many respects, understanding the gospel. Uh, It is true that during Jesus' earthly ministry, that was true, and it's true today. And it's not a secret that, you know, if you look at, like, say, the churches in Europe or even in America, a lot of them are empty, and they are increasingly so. And where is the church growing? It's growing where poverty prevails. South America, Africa, China, the Middle East. Poor people have often welcomed the message of the gospel, and this dates back to the very beginning. Even Paul, when he's writing to 1 Corinthians, he points out, like, not many of you were noble, meaning most of you are from the lower classes, Right? It's always gotten, the gospel's always gotten a better hearing among the lower classes, it seems. But how on earth is it a virtue to be poor in spirit? Why not say, blessed are the rich in spirit, 
I mean, to me, it seems like rich in spirit would sound pretty good. So how can spiritual poverty make you happy or blessed? What does this mean? Sounds like the exact opposite of what most of us as Christians are are striving to be. To be poor in spirit sounds to me a little like being like Eeyore. Depressed and, and downcast and weak and cowardly. And that's not what we're aiming for in the church, is it? We'd rather be like Bob Ross, slap a happy face on everything. It's happy accidents, happy mountains, happy trees, happy clouds, right? We admire people who consistently exhibit joy and a sort of richness of spirit, you might say. And yet Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, I don't think Jesus means for us to be cowardly, nor do I think he means to say that depression is the highest form of godliness I don't think that he's saying we should all try to be Eeyore. I have a a melancholy streak myself. I am easily discouraged sometimes, and I would be lying if I said that this was in any sense a blessing to anybody. In fact, it's generally driven by a lack of faith on my part, and I think it does damage to me, it does damage to my wife and my kids when I'm like that, and I'm sure it doesn't do any of you any favors either. So I don't think that can possibly be what Jesus means, and so far as Spiritual poverty is sinful. It should be mortified like any sin. If being poor in spirit was sinful, Jesus wouldn't bless it. So what does he mean? How can we be poor in spirit but not in a sinful way? Part of the way to interpret any of this is to remember that Jesus is perfect, right? Uh, I said last week, by the time Jesus is done reinterpreting the law, by the time he's done explaining what God was really getting at in the law... Once he draws that circle ever tighter, he'll be the only one left standing. So somehow, even this first blessing must point to him. Uh, Theologians often talk about the three uses of the law. And the first use, they say, is as a mirror. It shows us how sinful we are and how desperately we need Jesus. That's probably the, the most important one to remember. The second is the civil use, meaning the government can even use God's law and restrain men from being as wicked as they would otherwise be. And the third use is as an actual guide to behavior for us as believers, meaning Christians can obey the law, uh, not to save themselves, but out of love for God and for his glory. I think that's a helpful footprint. Uh, And and we can apply that thinking throughout the Sermon on the Mount, including the Beatitudes. So therefore, this first blessing, first and foremost, makes us aware of our need for Jesus. Or put it another way, if the Beatitudes are all about blessings, who's the most blessed man who ever lived? Jesus, right. And somehow, Jesus, therefore, epitomizes what it means to be poor in spirit. And he never sinned. So if the first beatitude is part of Jesus' law, then we can reformulate it as a command. We must become poor in spirit, and whatever Jesus means by poor in spirit, it's something we should strive for. Moreover, it's something that Jesus did perfectly. How is Jesus ever poor in spirit? I don't think it means that he was discouraged, at least not in the way that I experienced discouragement. So much of what I call discouragement, again, it's really just a lack of faith. I can see how God, I can't, I can't personally see how God is going to fix a situation, so I despair, and it's easier to curse and kick things than pray sometimes. But that's not Jesus' way. And it also can't mean being poor in the capital S spirit, as in the Holy Spirit. It can never be a good thing to be poor in the Holy Spirit, and Jesus certainly never was that either. No man was ever as full of the Spirit as he was. So it can't mean that either. 
And as we've observed, it's not merely a question of finances. Jesus was certainly not wealthy during his earthly life. And after all, unless your name is Benny Hinn or Joel Osteen, unless you're the kind of pastor who hides cash in the walls of your church, ministry is not a moneymaker. John the Baptist lived on bugs, right? And the rest of us live on the charity of others. It's like working for PBS. We count on viewers like you. (laughs) But not all poor people are poor in spirit, and not all rich people are rich in spirit. The point is not what's in your bank account. So what does he mean by poor in spirit? And I think George, as she often does, kind of hit it on the head for me. We were discussing this after Bible study on Thursday. And she pointed out, you know, we we often say to people who are suffering or who need encouragement, we'll say that we're with you in spirit. Now, of course, that sounds like a lot of fluff, and it often is. Uh, It's very easy to make it sound like you are supporting someone without having to actually do anything. You know, it can be a throwaway line. But in its best sense, what we're trying to say when we use that language is that we sympathize Even if I can't physically be with you, even if my outward reality is not the same as what you're dealing with, I agree with you, I'm I'm happy for you, I'm sad for you, I hurt for you. To be with someone in spirit, in some sense, means to identify with them. As Peter Frampton once put it, do you feel like I do? If the answer is yes, even though you're not in my position, then in a sense you are with me in spirit. So the question is not so much, are you poor, but do you identify with the poor? And not only the financially poor, but even the Eeyores of the world, the discouraged, the depressed, the brokenhearted. Do you understand them? Do you sympathize with them? Do you feel like they do? Now, you can identify with the poor in many ways. You can eat ramen noodles. You can give more of your stuff away. But the main thing you need to remember is that it's not an act. You are poor in spirit. By almost any definition, in both the sinful and non-sinful senses. You have nothing to offer. There's nothing in your bank account. Even if you're well off financially, none of it means anything because it's going to rot when you're gone one day. It's the same ancient dilemma of the author of Ecclesiastes was complaining about. It's all meaningless. It's all going to be gone, and you can't take it with you. And that's true whether you're sitting on millions in investments or a crappy red sedan with a modest coin collection. See, even now I'm working on my street cred. Did you see that? I want to be poor, but in a cool way. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. If you're poor in spirit, then you've been gutted of all your pride and status. And that's what Jesus really wants. If you're poor and proud, you're still missing the point. To be poor in spirit, to know and believe how bankrupt you really are, those are the people that are truly blessed. The truly happy person is happy not because of what they have in themselves, but what they have in Christ. You can't be rich in Christ until you become poor in your own spirit. Now, how did Jesus do this? How did he sympathize with the poor? How did he identify with them? Well, no matter how poor in spirit you will ever be, no one's emptied himself of more than Jesus did. He became really poor just so he could be close to us. 
Paul says in Philippians 2, 6, that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, something, something to be held on to, and we know this to be true because he laid it all aside. So a Bible study on Thursday, when we talked about the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we covered his baptism and we covered his temptation in the wilderness, and we talked about how at his baptism, Jesus essentially chose to identify with his people. And Reverend Green pointed out the violence of certain verbs in Mark's account, how the heavens are torn open and how Jesus was driven into the wilderness. But who drove him? The same Holy Spirit who rested on Jesus at the baptism drives him into the wilderness. And it's striking, and it's striking in the similar way that that the entire Advent season was striking. Jesus laying aside the glory of heaven and uninterrupted presence with his Father Also, he could come down and be with poor people, the poor in spirit, the downtrodden, the people living in squalor, the screw-ups and sinners. He chose to hang out with us. So how can we dare to be proud? The difference between being rich or poor in spirit is the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector in Jesus' parable. The one who comes to the altar empty goes away justified. The way to get close to Jesus is to empty yourself. Don't boast in riches, obviously, but don't boast even in your poverty. And don't miss Jesus' promise at the end of all of that little, this little verse here. He doesn't just tell us what to do. He tells us why. He says it's because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the same language he uses of children. The kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. It's theirs. It's for them. Now, in a sense, of course, the kingdom belongs to Jesus first. He's the king. But just as any citizen might say, this is my country, right? In much the same way, the poor in spirit can say the same of the heavenly kingdom. It belongs to them. Jesus built it for them. Jesus didn't die for the rich in spirit. And the kingdom of heaven is not made up of people who boast in their spiritual riches, the good deeds they have done, their righteous record. It is populated by people who know how empty and poor they are and how little they have to offer and how bankrupt their spirit really is. The gospel is not for those who harbor pride in their hearts, relying on themselves. It's for those who come empty-handed and empty-hearted to the throne of grace. And that is why the church does not exist to eliminate all worldly poverty. Jesus said we would always have the poor with us. Our job is to remind all people everywhere, no matter their financial status, of how impoverished in spirit they are. To tell the rich and poor alike that they have nothing to offer. Not money and not even the street cred and self-pity that comes with being poor. God is not impressed As John Calvin puts it, only he who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. For they who are broken or overwhelmed by despair murmur against God, and this proves them to be of a proud and haughty spirit. So we want to be part of this kingdom, and we need to be poor in spirit. I like the way Matthew Henry put it in this comment on this passage. He said, we must call ourselves poor, always in one of God's grace, always begging at God's door, always hanging on in his house. We're ready to think concerning those who are rich and do good with their riches, that no doubt theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But what shall the poor do who have not wherewithal to do good? Why? 
The same happiness is promised to those who are contentedly poor as to those who are usefully rich. If I'm not able to spend cheerfully for his sake, if I can but want cheerfully for his sake, even that shall be recompensed. And do we not serve a good master then? It's a great line. This is not a kingdom of the healthy and wealthy. The gospel is for those who are broken and ruined and know it. But we have a good master, and he is pleased to come close to us. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this sermon that Jesus gave us. Lord, we acknowledge that in our natural selves, a lot of this just doesn't make sense. Some of these beatitudes just seem foolish on the surface, Lord. And yet the kingdom is made up of the the poor in spirit, Lord. Lord, help us to, to remember that and to know that. Help us to see our own bankruptcy, Lord, so that as our sin becomes bigger and bigger in our minds, Lord, that the cross becomes even bigger. We thank you that you are pleased to be close to us, to come to us, to humble yourself, to be right with us, Lord, and that you welcome us to sit at your feet. Continue to teach us, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology.